Hi folks, welcome to another instalment of the World War Nation podcast with myself, World War II explorer, Lawrence Waller. Join me on a journey of discovery into the past and present as we set out to explore the history of the Second World War. Our travels will take us from the home front to the battlefields of Europe and beyond. Travel with us as we revisit historical locations and walk the battlefields of World War II. We'll be tracking down wartime artefacts, speaking with veterans and historians alike, and paying our deepest respects to this remarkable generation, as we set out to try and help keep this period of history alive for future generations to learn from, and to try and tell the personal stories of those who bore witness to these monumental world events. It's going to be a long journey. In fact, it's going to be a lifelong journey, and I want you to join me on what will be a great adventure. If you wish to help support the World War II Nation podcast, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash worldwar2nationhq, or support us at Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash worldwar2nation. The links for both of these are also in the podcast bio below. Thank you very much for your support. In this episode, it's the second part of our conversation with Dr. Peter Shrivers about the Battle of Bulge and those who held Bestonia during that bitter winter of 1944 into 1945. Patton's US Third Army was tasked with trying to break through and help relieve the besieged American forces in Bastogne by crashing through the German Seventh Army holding the Southern flank. This proved anything but a cakewalk, and you know, the exact opposite. They faced a real hard slog to reach the town. Can you sort of take us through what happened and how they managed to achieve that? Yes, it, 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 this is certainly one of, of, of the more fascinating aspects of the battle for Bastogne, of course, uh, separate from the actual defense, is, is how to get into Bastogne. Um, it, it all revolves mainly in the first stages around one of Patton's favorite divisions, which is the 4th Armored Division very powerful, very capable, very experienced division, uh, siphon off from the Third Army, um, which is in the, the Saar region, northeastern France at that time, and rushes towards uh, a jump-off line. A jump-off line to the south of Bastogne, which that kind of armored division with its um, legendary speed, let's be clear about this, could have reached in half an hour. So if you look at the, the Fourth Armored Division jump offline south of Bastogne uh, on December the 22nd, um, they could have, if they'd been unopposed, reached it in half an hour. That's the that's the, the limited distance from jump offline to Bastogne Center. It'll take them five days of uninterrupted, incredibly hard fighting to get to Bastogne in the late afternoon of December the 26th. And that is testimony to, um, there's no lack of courage on the part of the man in the Ford Armored Division, but it's testimony to the tremendous fighting capabilities of the, the core division that they are facing, the Americans, the Ford Armored Division, which is the fifth parachute division, Fallschirmjäger Division. Um, I've talked with veterans from that division in the late 1980s extensively. And what you see when you analyze that division is um, 
you know, it's a Fallschirmjäger division. So faced by a, an armored division that they shouldn't have been capable of holding out for so long, but they were highly motivated. Very young people, 18, 19, 20, um, fresh troops, um, strong esprit de corps. Uh, part also of, of, of a defensive action against Patton's troops th that they were proud of. You know, they'd, they'd been on the run uh, since Normandy. They'd, they, they re they're receiving letters from relatives saying, uh, you know, all of our cities and towns are being bombed, um, family members being killed. So they're angry. They want to get back at the Allies. And here is their chance. Also, and not unimportantly, their commander is Ludwig Heilmann. He's new to the division, but he's not new to combat and he's not new to um, offensive defense because he has lived through the Battle of Monte Cassino. So he is, in terms of offensive defense, a very experienced commander and it shows. And so the battles that take place south of Bastogne, we tend to focus on Bastogne proper, but places like Warnach, Chaumont, Bigonville, Saint-Lé, anyone interested in the battle for Bastogne should get to know these names and what happened there in terms of the conf confrontation between Americans and Germans, 4th Armored and the 5th Fallschirmjäger Division. It is oftentimes very tough reading. Um, battles were very hard, no mercy on both sides, uh, civilians getting squeezed, um, and, um, you know, getting wounded and so on. But ultimately, the breakthrough on the American side comes from a very unexpected um, uh, angle in that the Fort Armored Division has been making headway as of December the 22nd in the direction of Bastogne uh, with three combat commands next to each other. The main effort was going to be on the road from Arlon to Bastogne, but that stalls time and again. There's another combat command to their left using smaller roads. They're being stalled. And then ultimately what is attempted is CCR of the Ford Armored Division to the right of the Arlon Road, playing a secondary role, is shifted to the left towards directed towards even smaller roads but in that ccr of the ford armored division a crucial role now is being played by the 37th tank battalion led by uh, a, a tremendously good commander by the name of creighton abrams and he manages to smash through German positions one after the other on those secondary roads. And all of a sudden, all of the momentum is with his tank battalion. And they're the ones finally who find soft spots in and around a village called Assenois. And from Assenois in the late afternoon, just before dusk of December the 26th, they make contact with uh, what are airborne combat engineers, which is again an indication of how weak to the south of Bastogne still the American lines are, because they have to put into the gaps 
combat engineers, as combat soldiers, uh, but that's who they shake hands with at that particular moment in time. And that is the so-called lifting of the siege. It's just a handshake between a few Ford armored tankers, of course, at that point, and a few uh, airborne engineers. And what they have now established is not a corridor into Bastogne. It is just a smallish umbilical cord. It's no more than that. Uh, but at least um, Patton's troops have made contact now with the defenders. You emphasize in your book this point that the fighting for Bastogne did not end with the arrival of Patton and the lifting of the siege on December 26, 1944. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yes. Um, I think the best way to actually illustrate this is Medal of Honours. Um, let me explain that. Um, Six medals of honor of honors were earned during the Battle for Bastogne. Two of those are earned in the context of the Ford Armored Division um, trying to smash its way into Bastogne. So it's an indication of how hard that fighting was. But once that contact is made and the siege is supposedly lifted, you now get into weeks of additional fighting until mid-January in and around, especially around Boston, you know, in that, um, first of all, the Germans are going to try and cut that umbilical cord at the same time that the Americans are trying to build that umbilical cord into an actually much more a much wider corridor. So you see attack after German attack being launched from the Western side and the Eastern side against that uh, corridor that the third army has established and has put up um, heading into Bastogne. Um, once those attacks are neutralized in very heavy fighting, especially around the end of December, very early January 45, the next stage is for the Americans to begin to use Bastogne no longer defensively as they've been doing up to that point, but now to be using it as a launching pad, that crossroads, into the waste of the salient. So what Patton is doing as quickly as possible is throw his troops around Bastogne from the western side of the town and the eastern side of the town, mainly trying to get them to reach one of those seven roads to hell that Donald Burgess once talked about, namely the road to um, the north, Ufalis, because Patton wants his troops to use the Bastogne crossroads, and especially the road heading towards Ufalis, to make contact with Allied troops coming down from the north at Ufalis. And once he does that, he will have cut off whatever German troops are remaining in the salient to the west of that road. The Germans realize that that is, of course, what they're trying to do, and they fight back desperately. So you have, for all of these reasons, when several books or, or, or television documentaries on the battle for Bastogne and when Patton's troops make their arrival on the scene late in December the 26th when they halt uh, 
the analysis of this battle. This is where it supposedly stops. This is really only the second installment of the battle that is to begin now. It even has an impact on the paratroopers inside of Bastogne. They've been fighting defensively up to December the 26th, but they're going to be used, exhausted as they are, physically and mentally, now in an offensive role, heading out of Bastogne towards the north, trying to get that road towards Ufanese. Look at the statistics for the 101st Airborne Division during the Battle for Bastogne. I think about they have about 2,300 losses during the defensive phase, so up to December the 26th and the arrival of Patton's troops. In that second stage, where everyone thinks the Battle for Bastogne is, is done and dusted, they suffer another 2,100 casualties. So almost as many casualties as during the days of the defense of Bastogne. So that is an indication, together with the statistics for casualties suffered by all of the other divisions that are now being drawn into that battle for Bastogne, continuing after December the 26th. It's an indication of um, why we should be talking about the battle for Bastogne from December the 16th all the way through uh, January the 18th, and not just December the 26th. In researching the German perspective of this battle, what are some of the more memorable stories you unearthed? I think some of the most memorable aspects of of examining the the German effort in that battle for Bastogne is how they're getting their hopes up again after being on the receiving end for so long and how that motivates them. I think if you analyze the... um, strengths of the German divisions involved in the Battle for Bastogne, be it in the early stages, Panzerleer, 2nd Panzer Division, uh, 26 Volksgrenadier Division, or in the later stages, when all kinds of additional divisions are being siphoned off from the northern shoulder to fight at Bastogne or from the strategic reserve. For all of these units, um, this is they also realize that this is the last gamble, that if this fails, there is no more hope. And it, it, it strengthens their determination, their courage, despite the fact that many of these students are, units are depleted. They are not as strong as they appear to be on paper. Um, they're often not as well equipped as they should have been. But they make up for that in terms of determination. That is true for Wehrmacht troops. Uh, troops. Uh, it's true for uh, the Fallschirmjäger Division, uh, the fifth uh, Fallschirmjäger Division that fights south of Bastogne. It's also true of, of, of the Waffen-SS. They fight more ferociously than ever around Bastogne. Uh, keep in mind that in that later stage of the battle for Bastogne, after the so-called lifting of the siege in early January 1945, Waffen-SS divisions that were part of the 6th Panzer Army effort on the, in the north of the bulge of the salient, and that had become blocked there along the Elsenborn Ridge, are now sent down southwards to Bastogne. So early January 1945, in another uh, attempt to take the town, uh, these Waffen-SS divisions are thrown into battle. Uh, one of them is the 12th SS Panzer Division. 
and it's it it's gotten a beating at the Alsenborn Ridge, uh, at the twin villages of Krinkeldrocherat, uh, heavy losses. But what remains of the division is now thrown into the battle for Bastogne early January 1945, uh, and they um, try to smash into Bastogne from the northeast. And at one point, these troops can be seen by villagers in a... Um, village called uh, Majeret. And in one of the farms in Majeret, you see a Belgian family hiding in the very sturdy Ardennes rock cellars. And they carry in wounded from the 12th as a sponsor division. And one of them is a very young uh, boy because this is the Hitlerjugend division. So they're what, 17, 18 years old. And so one of, of these soldiers is lying there, badly wounded, dying. And at one point, he, he, he motions to some of the Belgian villagers inside that cellar. Well, and they're too afraid to say no, <laughs> because this is often as that. So they, they, they come closer and, and he pulls something from out of his, his, his trench coat. And it's a portrait of Adolf Hitler. And he whispers to the villagers, they can't understand what he's saying at first, but he whispers and he says, if I die, I die for him. So I, I found that to be, in, in all of my research for the Battle for Bastogne, one of the most remarkable moments in my, my source research where I'm thinking, well, by this stage, you should know as a German soldier and a Waffen-SS soldier that not only the battle for Bastogne is lost by now early January 45, but you know the Ardennes counteroffensive is lost, and by extension, the battle in Western Europe and probably World War II. Yet at that age, 1718, this soldier says, if I die, I die for Adolf Hitler. Um, I mean, it sends shivers through your spine. You're right, it certainly does. Um, occasionally, readers have told you that they thought some of your descriptions of the battle so brutal that they find them upsetting to read. Yes, that's true. I, I've, I've gotten a few um, emails um, of people saying, yes, you know, I, I like the book, but, you know, do you have to be so graphic about some, some, some of these um, battle incidents? And, and I, you know, do you have to, well, I just want to demonstrate the ferocity of the battle in and around Bastogne and the nature of the battle for soldiers living through it on both sides and civilians, by the way. Um, I just recently was contacted by the grandson of a soldier of the 654th tank destroyer battalion, which, which helped protect the corridor into Bastogne from the south on, on the eastern side of that corridor against ferocious counterattacks. And, uh, you know, I, I, and, and that grandson alerted me to the fact that his, his grandfather was in my book. And so I reread the passage and it is a brutal passage um, in which he, you know, uh, he loses an arm. And I write about that very graphically, but it is also an illustration of the courage of, of that man. Um, he loses an arm in a battle where he 
tries to rescue wounded American soldiers in, in, in circumstances where, you know, an, an, an average person, person would not have tried, would not have dared do it, and he does it. So I think, in a sense, it, it is, I, I write these scenes because I want to bring across to readers that, you know, battle is not Hollywoodian, and that it is not surprising that veterans be it Allied or Germans coming out of this battle suffered from PTSD, uh, were traumatized for life by what they'd gone through. Um, I, I refuse to romanticize what I write about uh, war and uh, warfare battles. Um, I think you need to tell people what war is really like. And I think it is a problem for many people reading the book and, and at its most difficult to read when it involves civilians um, who you know, have not been trained, who, who are caught between, um, yeah, they're, they're far, farmers in the Ardennes, they're farmers. Uh, they want to stick with their cattle. They do not have much. Their cattle is their livelihood. And so they, they stay put. They're very courageous. They don't get decorations. They don't get medals. But in protecting their cattle and protecting their children, they sometimes pull off feeds that are just you know, hard to understand, but also hard to read. Keep in mind that if you write about a scene in the Ardennes where um, you know, allied air forces were extremely important in making the difference, but they use high explosives, but also to a large extent in the Ardennes, white phosphorus and napalm. Very few people know that apparently, but napalm was used on a large scale in the Ardennes against the enemy with horrible results. But that seeps inevitably also into basements, cellars, barn, uh, barns where civilians are hiding with all of the wounds that that inflicts, uh, no medical assistance available um, anytime soon. So yes, I write about that in, in, in a rather realistic way. Well, what were conditions like for those civilians and what are some of the most harrowing stories of the fate of those civilians that you've come across while writing the book? Well, it, 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 it's interesting, isn't it, Lawrence? Um, I, I made a point of weaving into the battle for Bastogne also, um, to, to some extent, the civilian experience because they suffered through those battles. Now, the Ardennes, if you know that region, they build from um, um, their homes and their cellars from very sturdy um, quarried rock. So they can withstand quite a bit, but not, of course, white phosphorus seeping in or napalm seeping in. And, and for that matter, they can withstand, withstand artillery quite well, but not airstrikes. These bombs go through the roof, through the house, and into the cellar in no time. So there are horrific scenes um, in terms of what is friendly fire. But on the other hand, also, of course, horrific scenes in terms of what they go through as a result of um, German actions. One of the most surprising things in examining the battle of the Belge, generally speaking, and the battle for Bastogne as part of that is that it, it, it's almost hard to believe that in this desperate Nazi German counteroffensive, which has to turn the tide. It's the last gamble. That in Berlin, 
people are planning for security forces of all kinds, Gestapo, Sicherheitsdienst, to follow in the wake of combat troops. So you see, as Germans push into Ardennes towns and villages, soon after, once the village has been cleared of uh, Americans, you see um, security forces, German Nazi security forces um, move in. And they'll begin to ask questions. And now this is very tricky for the Belgians, of course. They have been occupied for four years, somewhere in the resistance. Uh, they were hiding. They've been evading the Germans. But then in September 1944, they've all been liberated. So what happens? They're all fed, especially the resistance fighters. They're now in newly printed newspapers. Some, some, some shopkeepers put photos of the resistance fighters in, 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 in the shop window. So they're known by name. And what happens now is that the Germans come back, they take over again, and all of a sudden, Sicherheitsdienst Gestapo is uh, you know, asking questions. Well, who was in the resistance in this village, in this town, in this hamlet? And so they, they get to know this very quickly. And so you see village after village is being cleared of resistance fight, fighters in the most brutal way. Um, Noville is a village just to the northeast of Bastogne, very hard, hard fighting there for several days. Battle is over. Germans capture it. Combat troops move on. Um, security forces move in. They arrest eight Belgians on suspicion. Suspicion. There is no trial of having been part of the resistance, and they execute them in the street. There's a boys' school in Bastogne called the Seminary, and those boys, they're all teenagers. There's a secondary school. They flee through the western gates of Bastogne. They arrive at a place called Bonde. And security forces, after that is captured by the Germans, Bonde, move in again. They kill about 32 males in that village, aged 17 to 65, 16 to 65. Among them, several of the boys who fled that Bastogne school uh, and who certainly clearly were not part of any Belgian resistance at that age, but um, the Germans killed him just to make certain. So, um, yes, of course, oftentimes this is a stomach churning book to read, but, you know, I'm talking about facts on the ground. Returning to the battle itself, what in your mind were the missed opportunities for the Germans? Yes, there have been several ones, haven't there, Lawrence? If, if, if you think about it, in, in, the, in the very first days of the Ardennes counteroffensive, what you have heading towards Bastogne is a Volksgrenadier division and two Panzer divisions. So how can it be that these, in the very early days when the combined arms resistance is not fully present yet, that they do not succeed? Um, it's, it's a combination of factors. Um, I think the most important factor to keep in mind in terms of German missed opportunities with regard to Bastogne is that they never manage to create a schwerpunkt, a main point of emphasis where they mass concentrated power against one point of Bastogne and breakthrough, which they could have. 
um, on, on several occasions, but it is always a juggling of um, priorities. Yes, it is very important to capture Bastogne and take hold of that crossroads in terms of whatever needs to happen in um, the offensive through the Ardennes. But at the same time, that is not their main objective. Their main objective is the Meuse River, cross that river, break out of the Ardennes and get onto the plains leading towards Brussels and Antwerp. So what, what happens oftentimes is rather than um, reach a kind of critical mass around a certain given point in Bastogne and, and, and create a Schwerpunkt there, you see Panzerleer early on when it touches upon the paratroopers that, that early on that Tuesday, one of the first days of, of, of besieging Bastogne, and they encounter resistance. They say, well, let's not waste too much time around Bastogne. We'll take it later. Let's siphon off parts of Panzerleer. They need to move on past Bastogne in the direction of the Meuse. But that costs them dearly later on, of course, when we talk about attempts southeast of Bastogne, later on, Marvi, northwest of Bastogne, another attempt to break through uh, at Champ. You see piecemeal attacks. Uh, you see German divisions that leave only parts of what uh, is, is there in terms of strength behind at Bastogne. And, and as much as the esprit de corps of the 101st Airborne Division, as much as the combined arms defensive that they're able to, to um, create, it is that lack of, at any given moment, uh, a German attempt at concentration of power at one given point. I think, in my mind, one of the biggest missed opportunities is... Um, that Wednesday of the first week, the offensive starts on a Saturday, but that first Wednesday after um, the launching of the offensive, you see the second Panzer division, a very powerful division, quite up to strength, um, northeast of Bastogne. And they take a village called Nouville from paratroopers that um, are trying to defend Bastogne. Now, this is a village, Nouville, um, that is up to five miles away from the Bastogne center. So it kind of sticks out like a finger, that paratroop presence. Second Panzer Division ultimately manages to take it from the paratroopers. They're too weak to hold out against an entire Panzer Division. But Noville is located on the road from Ufalis into Bastogne. If at that point, after capturing Noville, the second Panzer Division had said, and, and I invite you to, if you ever visit the Ardennes, to, to walk the road from Bastogne to Noville. It is a straight arrow of a road, perfect road. If that second Panzer division had said, we roll down that road into Bastogne and smash into it, no one had been able to stop it. The commander of the division actually says, shall we pursue the paratroopers into Bastogne? And higher command says, no, do not waste time doing that, head towards the Meuse. And that's what they do. But I think they could have captured on that Wednesday Bastogne easily if they had tried. Uh, but it's the juggling, uh, the juggling rather of 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 objectives, Bastogne versus crossing the Meuse as quickly as possible, that causes missed opportunities on the German side. What were the most impressive acts of valor during this battle in your mind? Can you highlight a few of these? 
Well, I think quite logically, you're going to look towards who earned medals of honor and in what circumstances. And I think what, what two cases that jump out for me and that also illustrate aspects of the Battle for Bastonian that are not that well known uh, oftentimes is the, the first Medal of Honor earned by an American soldier is someone by the name of Paul Wiedorfer from Baltimore, Maryland. He's married, he, he's left behind a, a very secure job at a utilities company, he's, he's a kind of clerk. Um, but then suddenly when thrown into combat south of Bastogne, uh, he, he, he is uh, an infantryman of the 8th Infantry Division, which covers the right flank of the 4th Armored Division that's trying to get to Bastogne. Now, the 4th Armored Division is making very slow headway uh, towards Bastogne and, and signals send out, well, we need more infantrymen to help defend our tanks against those Fallschirmjäger. And so two battalions of the 8th Infantry Division are quickly siphoned off and trucked towards the 4th Armored Division to lend support. Paul Wiedorfer is in one of those battalions. Now, on the very first day that he helps out the 4th Armored Division south of Bastogne, his company runs into a German obstacle. Two machine gun nests are firing. His company is pinned down, is not moving anymore. Something needs to happen. And it is Paul Wiedorfer who gets up, armed with only one grenade, hand grenade, and his rifle storms towards the first machine gun nest, slips on the ice, a sheet of ice. And so, so his, his comrades in, in, in the front lines gasp when they see that happening, thinking he's lost. He scrambles up again, throws the hand grenade into the first machine gun nest and eliminates it. And next, just armed with his rifle, now he storms to the second machine gun nest, hits one of the soldiers on the head uh, with, with the butt, um, fires a few shots first, then starts hitting them with, with his rifle butt and, and kills a few and, and takes the others prisoners. So he takes out two machine gun nests all on his own. And after that, the company gets going again. So he creates momentum and he, he earns the Medal of Honor for that. He survives it. Um, it's just one strong example. Another is certainly um, uh, an armored infantryman from the Ford Armored Division proper by the name of James Hendricks. His story is even more incredible, uh, if you can imagine. Uh, so he is an armored infantryman coming close to Bastogne uh, on December the 26th. Um, he sees the tanks making contact with the airborne defenders before dusk. But he is an armored infantryman that now is part of units that have to stave off German counterattacks. Germans realize, ah, contact has been made. We need to eliminate this umbilical cord. So heavy counterattacks. And he's part of staving those off. And if you read his story, he, he's from a family in Arkansas, a sharecropping family, very poor. He has, I think, 10 brothers and sisters. He, he hasn't gone to school much. But he'd always been in Arkansas hunting. He knows how to use a rifle, and he demonstrates that sort of Bastogne between Assenois and uh, the Bastogne Center during those German counterattacks. At one point, he takes out the two crews manning two of the feared 88 millimeter artillery pieces of the Germans with his rifle. He 
just takes out the cruise. Uh, he moves on, jumps out of a half track to um, pull soldiers from another half track that is on fire, uh, rolls over the body of one of his American comrades to put out the flames because his, his clothing, his uniform is on fire. And while doing that, fires at Germans who are trying to um, kill them. He does it a second time, further up the road, closer to Bastogne. He again uh, rescues a few wounded Americans and defends them by firing his rifle. And at one point he says, you know, at the end of it, resin was oozing out of the wooden rifle butt. Uh, that's how he's been fighting for hours on end. And he earns again a Medal of Honor. So it, it is the repeated acts of courage like that, uh, which makes the difference both in the defense of Bastogne and in the offense around Bastogne in the direction of Ufalis and in the attempt to cut off the salient. When the weather permitted, how crucial was the role played by Allied air power during the siege of Bastogne and its subsequent lifting? Well, there's no doubt about that, Lawrence. Absolutely crucial. Um, that said, it means that uh, the American troops inside Bastogne have to hold on without that air power for an entire week. Uh, but once the skies clear, uh, you know, air forces demonstrate how important they are. Um, the first week is 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 especially taxing for forces inside Bastogne because it's constant um, cloud cover, mist, uh, fog. Uh, there, there's not an aircraft that can get up and help out. But then a week later on Saturday, December the 23rd, a Russian high pressure system moves in from the east and all of a sudden temperatures drop, but also the skies clear to a perfect blue. And what you have then is uh, two aspects of air forces helping the defenders of Bastogne out. On the one hand, of course, there is the supply, um, at the end of the first week, um, they're short on food, but especially, especially on ammunition and um, medical supplies. And so those are now being uh, dropped by um, um, C-47, Skytrains, Dakotas, uh, one airlift after another heading towards Bastogne. So that makes a crucial difference. But also there is direct support for combat troops in the form of um, fighter bombers. Um, and we see in his estimate, the uh, commander of CCB of the 10th Armored Division, which is part of that armored division inside of Bastogne helping out the airborne troops. So they know what firepower is, they man the tanks. But nevertheless, that tank commander at the end of the battle for Bastogne said, that air power and the support of fighter bombers was probably the equivalent in the defense of Bastogne of, he said, two to three divisions. And I think that immediately sketches how important they were at the time. Uh, they, they set up a kind of uh, almost like a factory-like system. There is an Air Force controller that was whisked into Bastogne before the, 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 the siege was complete. Um, he sits in a tank 
inside uh, the Heinz Barracks headquarters in Bastogne, where McAuliffe is in a in 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 a basement uh, directing operations. Inside that tank, um, all kinds of messages are being relayed about where there are German troop concentrations or potential attacks forming up. And within minutes, within minutes, they radio to uh, squadrons and they sweep down on those German troop concentrations, oftentimes very close to the American line, sometimes too close. There are instances of friendly fire. Um, but they scare the hell, as Patton noted, you know, our air forces scare the hell out of the Hun. And they certainly do um, around Bastogne. I think a really interesting dynamic of that also when reading your book was the medical staff that flowed in or glided in, I should say. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, the the, the those are heroic efforts, of course. Huh? You see C-47, once the sky is clear, that is also an element of support um, for the defenders of Bastogne, who have many wounded, of course, who they cannot evacuate. Um, so you see C-47 sky trains bring in entire medical crews. At one point, you see uh, um, a reconnaissance plane, uh, a Piper Cup or something like that, <laughs> fly in a very experienced combat surgeon. You talk about suicide missions. The, the surgeon volunteering for that certainly uh, agreed to be part of a suicide mission because that cup, Piper Cup has to flow through flock thrown up by the Germans and then managed to land on what is like a, a post-stamp-sized area inside Bastogne. Um, but there crucially needed of course to treat the wounded because prior to that um, even prior to uh, the ring around Bastogne closing the main hospital of the 101st airborne division that is an integral part of such a division had been set up on the western side of Bastogne uh, thinking that they were safe there and what happens um, on, on the second day that they've been set up, and even before the circle around Bastogne is completely closed, a, a reconnaissance force of one of the armor, German armored division that's heading towards the Meuse, that's not even interested in Bastogne. The 116th Panzer Division has nothing to do with the battle for Bastogne. But a reconnaissance force of that division stumbles across that airborne hospital to the west northwest of, of, of Bastogne and they take all of the medical staff prisoner they take the patients with them and all, all of the medical supplies of course that are most welcome so that means that now in terms of medical aid the 101st airborne division is eviscerated uh, this is the, the hospital where what happens is you get wounded in defense for Bastogne you first go to a battalion or a regimental aid station they give you first aid, and then you move on, certainly the more seriously wounded, to that divisional hospital. Well, it doesn't exist anymore. And so now it is smallish aid stations with limited supplies and a lack of expert doctors uh, that need to treat all cases inside Bastogne. And so by the end of the siege, when Patton's troops arrives, there are or close to 1,200 wounded, some of them badly wounded, stomach wounds, uh, head wounds, 
Um, and so this is why desperate attempts are sometimes being made um, to try and have surgeons being flown in or medical crews in C-47 gliders. Uh, because people are simply, you know, wounded Americans who could have been saved are not being saved for lack of personnel and equipment, which is, of course, a, a very sad thing, very hard on morale, very sad thing happening during those days. Well, Peter, this has been utterly absorbing. I really appreciate you taking the time to go through this, the Battle of Bastogne, and explain that in a little more detail. It's been some incredible accounts. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure, Lawrence. Thanks for listening. We hope you found it of interest. If you enjoyed this episode, please do feel free to subscribe to the podcast or leave a review. We hugely appreciate your support. We should be sharing more information about various things mentioned in this episode on the World Nation podcast on our social media channels. You can find this info and drop us a message with any questions by following us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube at World Nation and also Instagram at World Nation HQ. And if you wish to help support the World Nation podcast, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash worldwar2nationhq or support us at buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash worldwar2nation the links for both of these are also in the podcast bio below thank you very much for your support obviously also a big thank you to peter for taking the time to chat with us about this fascinating topic part two of our conversation with adam berry talking about troop carrier commands during the second world war will be out very shortly stay tuned for that Anyhow, until next time, this is Lawrence Waller signing off for this episode of the Wellness Nation podcast. Mm-hmm.